Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers, from the Acts of the Apostles in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's a great joy for me to be with all of you this morning to give thanks to the Lord for all of His gifts. One is that we are gathered here together at all. I have a friend in Minnesota who, who has uh, been told, you know, you can have groups of 10 people and that's it, and you can't sing. The governor himself in Minnesota has said that. I don't even know what, on what authority they do that. Anyway, another time. The other is, of course, the gift of a new baby in our family. Catherine was born last Saturday evening, and we are all enjoying time with her, enjoying this time as a family. But I'm very glad to be here with you to bring the gospel to you this morning. Today we are bidden by the lectionary readings to focus ourselves on the unity of the church. We are told not only of that apostolic band leaving the Mount of Olives, having seen the Lord ascended to the right hand of the Father, but we are told what they do afterwards. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And so they go down from the Mount of Olives with the women, with Jesus' brothers, his uh, kinsmen, and they go to the upper room right across the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, where they had spent so much time first in the celebration of Passover, and then behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. It was there that they beheld the Lord in His resurrection, appearing to them beyond those doors. And it was there that He breathed on them, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. On this day, we are told that they devoted themselves to prayer all together, with one accord. They are united together. In the reading from 1 Peter, Peter reminds the church that judgment will begin with the household of God. Note, he writes this, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an adulterer or as a meddler. He doesn't say, you know, it's okay if a few of you sin. It's all right if a few of you suffer for your sins. There's probably an acceptable failure rate between 90 and between, you know, well, whatever, 3%, 4%, 5%. We can deal with that. No. He says, let none of you suffer for doing wrongly. What Peter wants is a church that if she suffers, suffers without shame, suffers unjustly, suffers for the name of Jesus Christ, glorying in His name. Peter's call has been radical. He has called upon the church to honor and obey the emperor, for slaves to honor and obey their masters, for husbands and wives to obey each other. If you've been married long, you know that you can't actually love your spouse unless you're willing to obey them. Obedience is tied up in what it means to love. The Christian is to live in submission to earthly authority so that if he suffers, he may suffer for the good he does and not for evil. 
Now, of course, earthly authority has its limits, and we have to acknowledge that there comes a point when Christians have to say, we will obey God and not you. But what Peter desires for the church is peace. The ability to live peaceably with neighbors and enemies alike so that the church may live in a peaceful unity as she proclaims Jesus Christ as King. And finally, in the Gospel reading, we have those wonderful words of prayer from that high priestly prayer of Jesus. Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me that they may be one even as we are one. In the same way as we are one, may they be one. That is not unimportant at the end of the day. The church's essential unity described by the first of the four marks of the church, and if you remember back to catechesis, the four marks are that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. We say this in the Nicene Creed every Sunday. The church being one We don't mean that it's some sort of jurisdictional unity, that we all follow the same canons or that we all have the same authorities. Or that it's a unity forged through negotiated agreements and ecumenical statements. Or by individual Christians being in agreement with one another. But in and through the person of Jesus Christ, whom we have put on as Christians in the water of baptism in and through the person of Jesus Christ who has joined us in one body to the Father. He has authority over all flesh to do this. The body of Christ's unity is forged in the triune love of the triune God. Our fellowship is, as John puts it, with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This unity forged in the church's status as a people joined to Christ by the sacramental grace which pours forth from His side, both in baptism which initiates us into the church's life and in the Eucharist which not only initiates us into His life, but also deepens our life in the church. That unity is not something we strive for, which is given to us because of our merit, but which is something which is given to us given to us abundantly. You might say, however, please, Father Nelson, show me the unity of the church. Where is it? I want to see it. Pay up. Where's the unity of the church? I don't see it. And I would say all the more, this unity is not of our own making but rather worked and made in us, even if this essential unity is unseen. There's this wonderful debate, is the church visible or invisible? And some people have said visible, and others have said invisible. And we as Anglicans say, it's both. Is that confusing? Yes. Is it true? Yes. If it is sacramental you will not just see the inward grace. You will see the outward sign. For a moment, let that be what it is. The glorious truth is that every Christian has been baptized in the name of the triune God, marked and sealed, joined to Jesus in His death and resurrection, made a member of the church, and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Consider what an incredible thing it is that with all the splintering that you see today, every single one of you, no matter what church you are baptized in, were baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
Otherwise, I would have rebaptized you, <laughs> or in fact, baptized you. I rejoice today that when a passionist priest in Detroit, living in a monastery, baptized me over 40 years ago, I can't believe that, over 40 years ago, he didn't do so in the name of the Pope. He didn't say, I baptize you in the name of Pope John Paul II. That would have been awesome. But he didn't. He didn't baptize me in the name of Rome or in the name of the monastery or in the name of whatever saint he liked best or in the name of the city of Detroit, or in the name of the state of Michigan, or in the name of the United States of America, but in the name of the triune God, alleluia. I thank God that the membership He has given me in His very self is not dependent upon my own work, but upon what He has done and the unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit which is a unity into which He has taken us in His incarnate self. I am thankful that all of you, when you were baptized, were not baptized in the name of this church or that church, but in the name of the triune God. I mean, thanks be to God for that, that you weren't baptized in the name of Meadowbrook Baptist Church or whatever it was. That ancient church before the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, however, had not received this gift of baptism. They had not yet been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had breathed the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, but this wonderful gift which makes them what they truly are, ecclesia, had not been poured out upon them. You may have uh, uh, noticed some people's style as eclectic. You know what eclectic style is? It's gathered from lots of sources. It's the same word where we get ecclesia, gathered together. It's the same root. The gathered and called people of God. Called out, called to. Think about them for a moment. Those gathered there in the upper room as they prayed together in one accord. You have first among them, even though she's not named first, Mary, called as a teenager to bear the incarnate Christ in her womb. She is the mother of the church because she is the mother of her Lord. In most of the iconography that surrounds the day of Pentecost, she presides over the church because she is the first to open herself up to the living and active Word of God. And so she presides. She is the one who conceives by the Holy Spirit. You have Peter, James, John, and Andrew, those fishermen who by the shores of the Sea of Galilee were called from their nets, from their boats. Follow me, Jesus says. You have Philip and Thomas and Matthew called out of his tax collector booth. All of them called by the Lord Jesus out of their life such as it was and into His life. Which is a life lived in union with the Father. They are granted the grace of participation in the very life of God through the life of the incarnate Son whom they saw. 
whom they followed. And they are made whole by that. What they witness in the Ascension, and today we celebrate not Ascension Day, but Ascension Sunday, or the Sunday after Ascension, where because a lot of you weren't here on Thursday, you should have been, but you're not, (laughs) you can simply say, we're going to celebrate something of the Ascension today as well. We're in Ascension Tide, which what they witnessed is the elevation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, to the right hand of the Father. This is good news to the disciples. They witness the exaltation, not just of one bit of human flesh, but all of human flesh. I love that last verse in the hymn we sang after the gospel. Did you get it? Did you catch it? You have raised our human nature. Indeed, what they witness is the raising, the exaltation of human flesh to its final and perfect end. That end is referred to in the very opening pages of Holy Scripture, that human life is made in the image of God. As as Genesis writes, in the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What is being referred to here? You know, my whole world was blown open by taking a course last summer with John Baer, and, and he really did break it down. He, he spoke of how the incarnate uh, Christ at the right hand of the Father just has gone completely outside of time, to the point where even in the creation, you have the incarnate Jesus at the right hand of the Father. From our perspective, it's a long story, a narrative told with a beginning and an end, but in God's world, there He is, right there, all through the whole story. So to be made in the image of God means, as my beloved friend Jim Packer says, that we are made to be like Jesus. And the Lord in His body ascends to the Father. And the disciples are given an image of their final end, which will draw them through all the trials they face, which will draw them through all the difficulty, which will make all of it worthwhile. And we're told that they aren't afraid like they were on Easter Sunday. They go forth joyfully rejoicing to have seen this. And for the rest of their life, they will be drawn to this image, to this perfect image of what they were made for. To be with the Father. And in fact, they believe that they are already there. As the Lord in His body ascends to the Father, they're given this image of their final end. They certainly see that. But they're also given an image of what they have been made. restored to the fellowship of the Father. As Jews, they believed that the Messiah would come down from the Mount of Olives in this wonderful event and and slaughter the enemies of God. To this day, devout Jews are buried at the base of the Mount of Olives. When you go and you stand on the, on the, uh, uh, anywhere, you know, anywhere in the Kidron Valley and you look up, you see just 
thousands upon thousands of ossuaries containing the bones of, 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 of Jewish people who've been buried there. And they do this so that they can have a front row seat for the appearing of Messiah. So that they can behold the Messiah from the very moment of His appearing. Why do they do this? Because they believe it's the thing that they've been made for. Do you see the reversion of what's going on here? The reversion of this by these two men, which we assume are angels, who speak to the apostles. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, He will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Now they probably stood there for a moment, wondering and waiting for the Lord to immediately bring heaven back with Him. In this singular moment, for Him to do as they had asked Him, to restore the kingdom to Israel. That was what they asked Him to do. Restore the kingdom. Lord, when will You restore the kingdom to Israel? But what is it that Jesus says to them? He doesn't say, wait for me. I'll be back in a few seconds. What does he say? He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it's then that he's lifted up. Their conception of the restoration of the kingdom is far too narrow, far too limited, limited to one spot, one place. And it's in this moment that it's all turned over. It is not only in Jerusalem that the Lord's kingship is to be proclaimed. It is not only in Jerusalem that the Lord's kingship is to be realized, but it is in a universal kingship exercised by Jesus over the whole of creation. This kingdom must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, first in Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You know, in the old days, it was, it was considered a banishment to be sent to the ends of the earth. Like, you go away to the ends of the earth where we don't have to deal with you. But what does Jesus do? He sends them with power to the ends of the earth. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles tells this story how the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed first to the Jews, then to all kinds of Samaritans, all kinds of disinherited Jews, including an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the, who's reading the work of the prophet Isaiah on his chariot headed back to the Kandake, who's the old you know, Nubian leader, and then to the Gentiles. The Acts of the Apostles is the story of God's chosen people, Israel, being reconstituted in the Apostles, being reconstituted in a new household, not to the neglect of what came before, so that that household may be what was foretold to Abraham. All the nations of the earth calling themselves blessed in Him and in His descendants. Thus, what one can say and what we can say is that the universal kingship of Jesus Christ is established. There is a oneness which comes from Him of His gathered church, His ecclesia. 
The oneness comes from His kingship. The oneness comes from those whom He has called to profess His name. The Psalms of Ascent testify to this so wonderfully. In Psalm 122, Jerusalem is described as a city that is bound firmly together. If anybody's been to Jerusalem, you know that it is not bound firmly together. There's a whole lot of hatred going on in that city. A whole lot of people mad at each other. I mean, for crying out loud, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there are regular fistfights between various rival churches. But how do the Psalms describe Jerusalem? It says, a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The city is bound together not because of their agreement, but because of its identity in the Lord who calls them. This city of peace, which is the very name Jerusalem, is peaceful precisely because every tribe, every ethnos, every people is taken up into it to give thanks. Where is this Jerusalem? Do you have to fly on El Al to get there? No. No. This is the Jerusalem into which Jesus has brought us in His incarnate body. The Jerusalem that is above. The Jerusalem that is behind the curtain of what we can see. It is this household that will be judged first. This one household of God. And in this reading from chapter 1 today, we see that initial seed of the kingdom, assured by the Lord's resurrection and ascension, gathered together in the very place where Jesus had given them the sacrament of His body and blood, where He had assured them that they received power, where He had given them the authority to forgive sins. And they delight in that room, in the fellowship that is theirs, by devoting themselves to prayer. Together. Note, they don't go and say, well, if Jesus has called us to be witnesses, we ought to get about it pretty quickly here because, you know, time's a-wasting. They don't say that. They go to the upper room and they pray together. It's interesting to note that this coming together most likely happened on a Friday. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles tells us that it's about a day's journey from the Mount of Olives to this upper room, and I've pretty much walked that in the past, and it's about that. It's, you know, it's a long walk. (laughs) It's going to take you the whole day. But they would gather on this Sabbath, a Sabbath of great peace, of great assurance, having witnessed this ascension, of great expectation for what is to come. And where are they? That site is right on Mount Zion. It's right there. It's, a, it, it's in view of the temple. What are those people preparing for? What are they waiting for? What are they praying for? They're not just praying, and they're not just preparing for one Sabbath the next day, but for something far greater. A whole eternity of Sabbaths, a whole eternity of rest in God. But they're also preparing for something that will come ten days later as they wait there in that upper room for for God to do as Jesus said He would do when they receive power from the Holy Spirit 
They're waiting for that festival of harvest called Pentecost. The harvest of people from many nations, and I can't help but think of it this morning, that the church's experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit began not at the temple, but in that very upper room. In that very place where Jesus had given them the sacrament of His body and blood, it is there that He pours out His Holy Spirit upon them. And it's later when they go to the temple, when they go up, that the tribes of the Lord are added to their number 3,000 in total. People from all kinds of nations, all being baptized into the triune God. Remember what we'll, we'll read next week. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with wine. And what does, Jesus, what, does, what does Peter say? These men are not drunk. But he points to the prophet Joel saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is pointing to this gathering that will happen for which he has sat in the upper room with the others and, for what, and they have prayed for this. They've laid the groundwork for what God will do ten days later. They've prayed for it, but they've prayed for it having witnessed this ascension. Next Sunday, it'll be Pentecost. But for now, I simply want to say one thing in this in-between time. And that is this. That before there can be any Pentecost, there must be a fruitful ministry of prayer. That, can be, that before there can be any gathering, the church must be joined together in prayer to the risen and ascended Jesus, unified together, joined by the gifts which pour forth from His side to be a people of intercession and worship before God, a people who give thanks and a people who experience the peace of His kingship as they gather together in the city of His peace. Friends, that is what we do this morning, to be fed upon the body and blood of Jesus, to give thanks to the Lord, to proclaim His gospel, and to be a people who are unified together in His name, that we may bring in a wonderful harvest. Lord Jesus, grant to Your church a spirit of unity and prayer at the harvest. Grant to your church the gift of being joined together and unified as a people out of many nations to await your judgment in a common witness and outpouring of prayer. Lord Jesus, you are King. Reign in your church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.